Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories, stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, this is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Surprise, we're in your feet again. What are we doing here, Greg? Well, we're in a little bit of a Hollywood mood. My favorite movie from last year was a movie called First Reformed, which was written and directed by Paul Schrader, who was just this week nominated for the first time ever for an Academy Award for First Reformed. Paul Schrader also wrote the movie Taxi Driver. This is the first time he was nominated. He wasn't actually nominated for Taxi Driver. No, nor for Raging Bull, which is insane. So because of this and being in a Hollywood frame of mind right now, I thought that we would squeeze in a little extra surprise for you in between our regular Bowery Boys podcast episodes. Because as you may or may not know, we've actually started a new series, a new podcast series exclusively for our followers on Patreon. We call this the Bowery Boys Movie Club. And in this, we discuss a particular New York City-based film. We do a recap, but also kind of infuse the story with very New York City-centric trivia. Right. We've done this on Taxi Driver. We did it on Ghostbusters. And we're about to release our third installment in the movie club, celebrating the classic comedy, Anti-Mame. So we wanted to present to you the very first episode of the Bowery Boys Movie Club, which patrons received just a few months ago. If you would like to get more episodes of Bowery Boys Movie Club, you can support us on Patreon. But for right now, we hope that you'll sit back and you'll enjoy listening to our take on the 1976 classic Taxi Driver in celebration of its screenwriter, Paul Schrader. And to find out how to listen to more... Check us out on patreon.com slash Boys. And now, it's showtime. You talking to me? You talking to me? You talking to me? Well, then who the hell else are you talking? You talking to me? The Bowery Boys Movie Club presents Robert De Niro, Sybil Shepard, Jodie Foster, and Taxi Driver. Hello, everyone. This is Greg Young of the Bowery Boys Podcast here with my Bowery Boys Podcast host, Tom Myers. Co-host. Co-host. Yes, yes. co-host even. Hello, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to our first ever Bowery Boys Movie Club episode. Yeah, this is an inaugural show, a new thing that we're trying out that is exclusive for everyone 
supporting us on Patreon. Tom, why did we actually decide uh, to do this? Well, we wanted to do something. You know, we have struggled with trying to figure out what the right thing to give our patrons was in terms of an extra audio download. And so, as you know, if you've been supporting us on Patreon for a couple years, we've been putting together outtakes or longer versions of the shows or extended walking tours, you know, when we do Mm -hmm. a walking tour. And that's been kind of fun, and we've had positive feedback on that. But it just doesn't seem like quite the right fit. Well, it wasn't regular, and because because the show wasn't regular, sometimes we just didn't have extra material for something. Uh, other times, we'd have loads of it. So we wanted to do something. So we want to become regular. <laughs> we want to become. Re- we want to eat our bran. <laughs> my and grandmother. <laughs> my grandmother always recommended Metamucil. Oh, really? Yeah. I think my I think my dad had like a tub of Metamucil mm-hmm. in the in the counter. But but going to m- the movies yes. uh, became a very appealing idea because a lot of people we actually got a lot of emails and requests from people saying why why don't you do you know such and such movie like a whole podcast on it um, and additionally on the blog there was there was a lot of stuff that I've written about movies. I have to say that I have a like a, a pretty deep history with film like study and film like interest in filming we're both interested in film yes obviously. but Greg this is really <laughs> your baby I mean come on I think that my my deep interest skews a little bit more toward musicals and, sure. and the Broadway stage and yours is really like on you know projected onto screen the concept of the show here is that we're going to talk about a great iconic New York movie but we're not like film critics, although we're going to be very critical sometimes and we're going to be like opinionated. But what we're going to try to do as much as possible is put that film into New York City history context. Talk about like what is happening in the world, like in the setting of that movie or when it was filmed or whatever. And, you know, how history relates to the things that you're seeing in the movie, because I think it adds some, some richness So it goes without saying, then, that all of the movies that we're choosing for the Bowery Boys Film Club are movies in which New York plays a very central role. So we thought that we would start the series with Robert De Niro, Sybil Shepard, and Jodie Foster in Taxi Driver. So let me give a situate. Did I mention Martin Scorsese directed? Oh, sorry. Uh, in fact, we're gonna like actually let's get this out of the way first because we're gonna say his name a lot. Scorsese, Scorsese. So I think we. I think. What say he? <laughs> well, we are going to go probably back and forth and just say it and however we feel comfortable. I hear you say Scorsese a lot. Well, because he says it as Scorsese. So you would imagine, well, we should just say it the way he actually says his own yes. name. We but- should, right. <laughs> if it's how Scorsese says it, that's <laughs> the- how we should s- say it. But there are, but most people actually say Scorsese. Right. And I think that there are other people with that name who pronounce it Scorsese. Are we going to call him Marty? So, Taxi Driver, just to give a situate... All right, so on the show, we we situate the listener on the Bowery Boys podcast, but here you're going to situate the audience, situate the viewer? Yes, just give some bullet point recaps of, like, placing this movie in a place and time, right? So, Taxi Driver 
directed by Martin Scorsese, <laughs> Sazy, written by Paul Schrader, uh, was released on February 8th, 1976. So it was like a winter release. Produced, this is fascinating to me because as, as, a, as a, f- a film junkie, especially from the 90s, it was produced by Michael and Julia Phillips. Taxi Driver got rave reviews uh, when it when it came out in 1976. But here's the thing that I didn't r- remember. I was a cognizant human being in 1976, <laughs> but I didn't realize that it was actually a huge box office hit. Now, like looking back, you're saying that right now you would not have expected the Taxi Driver would have been such a hit. Yeah, well, think think of it's dark. Yeah, think of this like as a as a film, mm-hmm. and think of it when it came out. Um, I there actually, are scenes in this film that today. You know, forty-two years later, are still shocking. Oh, sure, so right. Even watching it right now, I a few times thought, "Oh my god!" Like, how did audiences mm-hmm. react to this? So apparently, they they reacted by buying tickets. Yeah. So I want to put it in in context. So it was it was like the twelfth largest film or the eleventh largest film of nineteen seventy six. But there, here are the films that made more money. Just to kind of put it in a cultural place, depending on what list you looked at, I'll just list the movies that were like the biggest ones. Silent Movie, which was a Mel Brooks Mm -hmm. movie, The Bad News Bears, Midway, The Enforcer, which was a Dirty Harry film, and you know, this Taxi Driver certainly borrows from some of the same Dirty Harry traditions, The Omen, and then, get this Tom, like the, so the top five box office hits were All the President's Men, Silver Streak, King Kong, the oh, 1970 the remake, yeah. the remake, A Star Is Born, oh. <laughs> right? What a year! <laughs> and then the, the biggest film of the year was Rocky. The film Taxi Driver was made by Martin Scorsese, Sazy Marty, Martin Scorsese, who was born in Queens. He was a NYU film student who made a big splash in October on October second, nineteen seventy three, with the movie Mean Streets. Now, did you ever see another that? Another great one, yeah. uh, in which New York features prominently. And then I I forget and this. that might be on our list. The, oh, that will that will probably definitely be on our list. What won't be, but a film that I love and I forgot that he made in nineteen seventy four. He followed that up with Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, oh. and um. That movie also features Jodie Foster. We're going to talk more about her later. Now, Taxi Driver went on to win the Palme d'Or in in the Cannes Film Festival, although, you know, it was actually booed by some people. Did you know this? Because Because it was too shocking? It was very violent at the time, and there had there had been, I think, the previous year, been some sort sort of uh, an altercation, an attack in Cannes, and so like this idea of violent, of such brutal violence, uh, elicited some boos. But of course, like the best movies that can get boos. Um, anyway, it got four Oscar nominations. It didn't win any of them. One was for best picture. One for, was for best score, and one was for best actor, and for Robert De Niro and best supporting actress for Jodie Foster. So, so regardless of whether or not it actually won the Oscars, it was a critical hit, mm-hmm. and it was a box office hit. Yeah. Now, I, I know that's something that you were really into. I, I mentioned the best score. Yes. So it's Bernard the, Herrmann. Right. Let's just spend a second on Bernard Herrmann here, because this, believe it or not— so it was his final movie. Now, Bernard Herrmann is very well known, for, well, for many, many films, but for for composing uh, many of the scores to Alfred Hitchcock films. Uh-huh. And there is a Hitchcockian feel throughout tra- Taxi Driver. You know, and the, the 
the sort of wailing of the saxophone, but also like the, the <laughs> deep timpani beats, you know, you're feeling, I mean, nobody knows how to build drama and suspense like Herman. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I mean, he is like, he created, he was one of the few people that created the sound of Hollywood pretty much, right? So right. here he is like literally the last movie, it's almost like a weird passing of the baton to a new uh, generation of filmmakers. Right, and in that way actually this film is a kind of crossroads, mm -hmm. right? Oh the, yeah. Of, of mm -hmm. old time m movie making and storytelling with a new way, avant-garde way of shooting and directing. And the, yeah, and it, it actually you because said I'm sorry, I don't think that the old timers would have actually shot the whole thing on location mm -mm. the way that Scorsese shot on location all over. Can you imagine this <laughs> film? And I know we're gonna dive into yeah, it yeah. here finally, but I'm like, can you imagine if this thing had been shot all in studio or on like backlots <laughs> in, in LA? It would have been corny or just like like uh, projections in the background <laughs> right. or, or everything. But I'm glad you mentioned locations. Before we go in, we're going to go through the plot sort of like by major bullet points and talk about specific location and historical things. But there's one thing I wanted to preface with location and that we can keep in the back of our minds, which is so interesting because, of course, this film has been picked to death mm -hmm. by film analysts, critics, or what have you. Well, I have and we will be recommending some really wonderful blog posts oh, that yeah. you can look at that even break down, um, including most notably Scouting NY, um, yeah, mm -hmm. where the author breaks down scene by scene where these things were shot and what's there today. My little pretentious point that I want to make is that they are the in terms of New York City, most of the film, and it's actually in a, several places, and we'll talk about the other places. The, most of the film takes place in three locations, and they each of the locations represent a character. So when you think Travis Bickle, as we go through the story, you're going to think the seediest area. Of, of Manhattan in the 70s. And that is, of course, Times Square, 8th Avenue, 42nd Street. Then you're going to think of the character of Betsy, played by Sybil Shepard. That and is in... That would take us farther uptown around Columbus Circle and the Upper West Side. Right. And finally... And that, because yeah. that's where she works, and that's where we see... I mean, we're led to think she lives at the end. There's a there's a sort of a, a, a cleaner <laughs> like space around her versus the other characters, especially Jodie Foster's character who is represented in the movie you may not you may be surprised that these scenes are in East Village yes uh, didn't we talk about that the, there's a bunch of things when you remember this movie like I don't know the last time you watched it but like I misremembered where things were because I thought they were like I thought for instance all the Jodie Foster scenes were in Hell's Kitchen right yeah I, I did not place them in East Village, which is funny because the last time, I mean, most recently I watched it, well, yesterday, but but before that, it was about 20 years ago when I was living on the Lower East Side at Essex and Canal. Mm -hmm. And so to think that actually I was quite close to where those scenes were actually shot, but it does make a certain amount of sense because probably when I watched it in my apartment, having rented it from two boots, <laughs> you yes. know, up on uh -huh. Avenue A, uh, the, the streets would have been kind of dirty and gritty, and yeah. there were cars honking and garbage trucks doing their thing, and, you know, <laughs> graffiti still around. So mm -hmm. how, I will yeah, note, yeah, yeah. though, that the, the last time I watched it, or the most recent time I watched it, yesterday, I watched it at the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, which is funny and ironic, because I was much, much closer 
to Sybil Shepherd. I, I literally <laughs> walked, I walked out of the library and was it was a super rainy day. And I walked out and I was on the streets of Broadway at like 64th Street. And it was about a block away from the Palantine office where <laughs> where Sybil Shepherd worked at yeah. 63rd and Broadway. Did you tussle your hair? Did it blow back in the wind? <laughs> I did um. look around for handsome cabbies. <laughs> Just hanging oh, out. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, we're about to jump into the, into the story, but there's one... There's one thing that I want us to keep in mind as we're going through the film here. It's filmed in 1975, and it was released in 1976. So the New York that it reflects is contemporary for the time. It's also, so 1975, that yeah. was the year. The city's that, broke. Yeah, I mean, that was this year that it, the year that it almost went bankrupt, okay? Right. This is the Ford drop dead mm-hmm. years here. So it... it Although it would, you know, in many kind of infrastructural ways would be bad for many, many, many more years. This is really, in many ways, the nadir. That's something to keep in mind because it's uh, um, that will come into the story indirectly. They don't talk about city finances in the movie, but they certainly do talk about the condition of the move of, of New Yorkers. And Travis does address it once to Palantine when he has him mm-hmm. in his cab. Yeah. Oh, right. Exactly. So... We're going to talk about that opening, Tom. That horror, it's almost like a horror show opening with the taxi driving through the steam and we get the credits rolling. You know, it's it's essentially we're seeing New York City through the eyes of of Travis Bickle, who will be introduced here in a second, but it is the most hypnotic, abstract version of New York, a New York of your dreams or nightmares. A New York of flickering neon signs and and puddles of rain and wailing saxophones. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, you get the two main Herman themes at yes. this time, um, including that saxophone, which is so over the top this opening scene also introduces another kind of thematic aspect which is reflected color so through this scene all these reds and blues you're getting all these reds and blues very vividly kind of reflected in windows and everything Scorsese plays with with light to reflect the main character's psyche in this and there's a couple scenes which I'll note that do like the red and blue are gone and it's another color so there's, that's kind of mm. happening in the background. So so finally, the movie starts, and we meet Travis Bickle, who is played by Robert De Niro, and he is going in for a job interview to be a hack driver, a taxi driver. Did you notice, do you know why we know his name? This is kind of a curious detail. It's written on his jacket. Oh, uh, yes, he, it's a, it, like he has a patch. Yeah, well, he has a King Kong patch, right? So it's a patch with King Kong, and then his name is written on it. And which what we find out is that he was in the Marines. So I, I expected, I suspect this is a Marine jacket. I would also point out that in the scene where he's he's applying for the job, we're inside a taxi company and we're watching a man. There's a man in the background who's like barking out orders, you know, to drivers. You know, get to sixty six, get to sixty six <laughs> yeah. and park, get to. And you realize, oh my gosh, right, like all the life that existed in this other world of like taxi ordering 
in a world that was very much pre-Uber and pre-Lyft. <laughs> this this movie yeah. would have been so much more boring <laughs> if he had been an, uh, an Uber driver. If he was just driving around going like, they need to clean the scum. Bing, your next client. <laughs> Please go to right. this corner. I mean, yeah. he's complaining about like wiping blood off the backseat. You know, today he'd be complaining about like getting a three-star rating <laughs> on Uber. He would go ballistic if they didn't tip him. Um, oh my gosh, that is a really good point. In fact, that whole space is so grimy and Ugh. gritty, and it's like those like authentic voices. By the way, he is clearly already kind of a smartass and unstable, right? I mean, you can already oh, yeah. you don't even know him that well at this point. Just his job interview. Like, who would hire him in that situation? Well, and the only reason he did get hired is because of the Marine connection. Right, that's true. that's why I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, so, I would also point out, you know, because this is a companion to our normal job and normal show, yeah, uh -huh. the Bowery Boys NYC History Podcast. We have a number of shows that kind of parallel some of the things that we're talking about here. Obviously, we have a show on uh, Times Square in the 70s that we recently did. We have a show mm -hmm. on Columbus Circle that we somewhat recently did. Um, lots of different shows. We we also have a show on taxis and the history of the mm -hmm. taxi business. I feel like that is the least relevant to this entire <laughs> movie. Weird, yeah, weirdly enough, it's it's not about the daily workings of it. Like, I feel like the comedy... The TV NBC comedy Taxi was right. a more realistic depiction of taxi driving than this. Although the, I don't, I, I, I do think the conditions of the cabs were probably the same. But <laughs> anyway, um, so we have to talk about when he the this amazing shot when he leaves. And he's walking down 57th Street, Tom. And are you, did you notice what was in the background of as he's walking as he's walking east on 57th Street? Did you notice what was oh in boy. the back? This is what. Wait, he's. This is not him driving off in the taxi for the first time. Talking about cleaning up the scum. We're, we're getting. To, yeah, we're going to get to that. The there's a there's a structure that no longer exists. Oh, was, in the far in the do you far see distance. The Coliseum? No, it's the Miller Highway or the West oh. Side Elevated Highway. Right, which was actually defunct when they shot the film. Oh yeah, that was the crazy part. It, it was just like, it was a ruin. And then and then additionally there's like a pier structure that is also gone. In fact, if you were to walk down that street today, it is virtually completely like wiped clean. Um, they've taken Travis Bickle's words to heart and wiped it all away. In fact, that um via, that bizarre tr pyramid uh, skyscraper is there today. Ah, so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. so anyway, so let's get him into his apartment where he's writing in his journal and he's like, that's where he says one of the famous lines, thank God for the rain for it washes the trash off the sidewalks. And he's e and, then, and then he's eating terrible junk food. I'm on like a Mediterranean diet right now. So watching this whole movie, I'm like, mm, a quarter pounder with cheese. A There's a lot of bad eating. You know, sometimes it's like dumping brandy on bread and adding sugar. Um, you know, Jodie Foster has a terrible looking breakfast at a certain point. It's just, you know, bad eating. 
but but sure. So he gets his car, mm-hmm. right? And he does. He he drives around. You see Forty Second Street, and you oh, see yeah. you see marquees, and you see dirty theaters. You see, for instance, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in one of the marquees. You see a fascination oh, yeah. arcade. So Times Square used to have these, and the Playland is also shown later. These are just like arcade skee-ball type places that you know used to be all over the place in Times Square. And then we see him go into one of the dirty films uh, that you know two side by side the show and tell he goes into um, because he's an insomniac. So he goes to a porn theater because he can't sleep and he doesn't want to be by himself. Now, the most incredible thing about that particular scene, by the way, is the fact that, you know, it's... Now, there are tons of movie theaters in Times Square at this time that are showing these, like, adult films, these French films, Mm -hmm. if you will. What's funny to me is that I never really thought that people went into those things and bought, like, concessions. (laughs) So when you walk in and he stops there and he kind of flirts with with the, the woman and gets an RC Cola and some popcorn... Um, Jujubee's Royal Crown. Royal Crown, right. Now, I have a very, very amazing piece of trivia for you about that scene. The woman who plays the concession lady there, her name is Diane or Diane Abbott, and she would become Robert De Niro's first wife. So uh, as he so he's he has insomnia. He's driving around. Um, There's this whole. See, he picks up a man at the uh, picks up a man at a prostitute up at Forty Eighth and Sixth. You know, he's cleaning off the, the the. It's like just nasty. He's like hosing down the cab, and then getting it cleaned uh, by driving through an open fire hydrant. Oh right! <laughs> so he has all this insomnia, and, he, and we've been so far in this movie living in this sort of like filth, right? Well, then the next day, as he's driving, you know, and he's driving around during the day, he's up around sixty third. And Broadway, so in between the Columbus Circle, Lincoln Square area, and that's when he first sees Betsy, played by Sybil Shepard. Sybil Shepard is working at the Palantine offices, campaign office. Palantine is a senator who's running for president in an upcoming election. He's actually hoping to get the nomination at this point in the movie. She's working in the campaign offices, which are at 63rd and Broadway, we think, in a building that no longer exists. And she has an amazing first outfit at uh, the time <laughs> that we see her. She's, she has one of these kind of like pantsuits, if I remember it, and like giant lapels that you could hang on for a while. Oh, yeah. And she yeah. looks like a piece of clip art out of a Dr. Zismore ad in the subway. <laughs> you know, the, the women who are like, clean, clean up those very oh, yeah. mm-hmm. and, and she's standing around looking fabulous. That's how <laughs> Betsy looks the first time. And De Niro just parks outside. He cannot help oh, yeah. but, but look in through the windows at her sitting there. I mean, do you remember that kind of creepy thing he says where it's like, they cannot touch her. Like it's it's like it's like this one of the more notably creepy things that he says up front. Tom, I just have to to read something really f- funny. The June in, in 1975, so before the movie came out, when they were filming it in mm-hmm. New York, mm-hmm. the New York Times actually ran a whole article on the Palantine campaign. Oh. <laughs> Quote, the New Yorkers for Palantine or Palantine for President Committee opened its headquarters in a storefront at Broadway and 63rd Street yesterday. Within hours, scores of New Yorkers had dropped in and asked, 
Who's Palantine? <laughs> um, Palantine is a presidential hopeful in the Columbia Pictures movie Taxi Driver, now being shot on location in New York. Uh, Leonard Harris, the former WCBS TV drama critic, is playing the role of Palantine. Oh, <laughs> fantastic. The Broadway storefront is playing the role of the campaign headquarters, complete with a large New Yorkers for Palantine for President committee billboard along the front of the building and a large poster on the 63rd Street sign, which features a picture of candidate Palantine, alias Harris, surrounded by smiling children and the caption, registered July 20th, New York primary. <laughs> so, you know, that could be very confusing if yeah. you lived like a block away, and especially if that wasn't the primary date. Was that even a primary? I don't think was that it, an election year? I, I'd have to check, but I don't think so. Oh, not 1975, no, yeah, 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 yeah. So very confusing. Now, let's get in the building here with uh, with with Betsy because one of my favorite little, I think, underused parts of the movie. I bet I here. know what it is. <laughs> is it when she she pulls a little prank? And, well, and sp- or that's later. Well, no, that is like a part of that prank. I mean, overall, the performance of Albert Brooks oh, yes. as Tom, who we first meet when he's like arguing over the like a something that had been printed about "We are the people," which is the slogan that he's using. He's like, "Not we, we the people, <laughs> not we the people." This is actually his first film, Albert Brooks. He he made co- comedy albums, and he was actually like distinguished himself by being as being the film director of the little shorts on Saturday Night Live in 1975. Isn't that interesting? Really? So this was his, I mean, and he's like such an accomplished actor and director today. But this is his first appearance, and very very notable. In fact, he has a, this kind of, you know, on and off sort of flirtation with Betsy. You know, we don't really know if they're dating, if there's yeah. a little office romance happening. But it's like a screwball. It's like the one part. It's almost like n- from another movie because it feels very screwball to me. But I think that that's the intention, right, in this yeah. film is that they live in this sunny place with lots of windows, lots of fresh air and comedy and happiness. And <laughs> yeah, like, that's true. And goofiness. You know, she comes over and pretends to spill a coffee on him and and like a straw wrapper comes out. I mean, that is like <laughs> as grisly as their world gets. And, in fact, when they notice that, you know, Travis is outside staring inside of them, she turns to Tom and she's like, put your glasses on. So he can look. And of course, he already has his glasses on. So he like does this. Wait a second. Okay. Uh, which is very, very cute. And, you know, so it's a, it's a, in just a few lines of dialogue with these two performances, we get like a what seems to be a very complicated relationship. But anyway, so but they... we know that relationship having worked in offices. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Oh, that's true. So essentially, Tom runs out and drives Travis away because that's that's very creepy. Yeah, so, you can't just sit here. He says. So we we see Travis driving around again that night. Uh, again, we see some wonderful. Old New York 42nd Street signs with a playpen for Netics, which was yes. a which was a was orange a, a, juice. They had, a, they had an <laughs> orange drink. I mean, it's back to sex and saxophones at that point because mm-hmm. you're going under the marquees again. It's at night. Mm-hmm. Now he also stops very briefly at this place called the Hotel. Olcott, um, which was on 72nd Street. I just wanted to, just to put this into perspective, because I didn't know a lot about that building, but just to put it in a historical perspective, five years later, in October of 1980, uh, one Mark David Chapman would stay at the Hotel Olcott on top of, he moved around also at the Waldorf Astoria and things like that, but he stayed there before assassinating John Lennon at the Dakota, which was also, you know, just right around the corner, essentially. Mm. 
So, let's, so that's disturbing. Th- yes. But back to the movie. So then we're like, you know, he's catching up with the other drivers. He's hanging out at an all-night diner. Oh, yes. Um, and there's that, you know, every time we're sitting down with the guys for like a middle-of-the-night cup of coffee. And again, we should, we should mention, if we haven't already, that he becomes a taxi driver because of this un- insomnia. Mm-hmm. You know, because he'd rather be out driving around and around other people than at home where he can't sleep or going to dirty movies. So he's like hanging out with the guys, but he never quite fits in with the guys. The several times we see him with the guys, he's always the oddball. There are a couple of (laughs) Well, that's such a good point because they're all oddballs, but they all try to bond with these sort of disgusting stories of sexual conquest. So Peter Boyle... Some things don't Blizzard. change. <laughs> yeah. Peter Boyle is is there and is what he's sort of his closest confidant. I think it's him. It actually talks about like oh like banging a like pulling off a woman's pantyhose oh, yeah, and the Triborough yeah. Bridge. It's like it's very very unsavory. There's also they it brings in at this point one of these themes of his like surging racism coming into play here as well because there's tables of of black pimps african-american men who are sitting there looking fairly ominous but i think that it's more because we're looking at it from his perspective otherwise it would just be people in a diner i from what i what i remember about that scene right it's it's a lot of men sitting by themselves at tables all dressed up in kind of pimp wear Uh uh-huh you know (laughs) yeah and and they're holding their bodies in strange angles so yeah and you're looking at his eyes too and then he's he seems disgusted yes by the whole thing and so then there's a close-up of him throwing Alka-Seltzer into (laughs) a glass and there's this amazing you know Herman's score disappears and you get this from the Mm Alka-Seltzer also very strange during that scene like another cab driver attempts to sell him a piece of Errol Flynn's bathtub yeah that he got at the Pines (laughs) yeah well the Pines but that is Errol Flynn's house in in, in California which I didn't I I had forgotten that detail about Flynn that he was the very like orgiastic type parties would happen famous or infamously at the Pines so I think that that was just sort of a nod to some sort of a scam artist but also like some salacious that could be bought. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. 
That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. I mean, they hate me. Why do you think I split in the first place? There ain't nothing there. Yeah, but you can't live like this. It's a hell. The girls should live at home. Didn't you ever hear of women's lib? What do you mean, women's lib? You're a young girl. You should be at home now. You should be dressed up. You should be going out with boys. You should be going to school. You know, that kind of stuff. God, are you square? Now, at minute 23, we're only 23 minutes into yeah. this thing. Uh, but it's the next day, and he finally has his date with Betsy. He picks her up. He takes her to, to Child's Coffee Shop um, on Columbus Circle, or about a block away. It looks like it's—I think it's 58th and Broadway. And he is, you know, looking smart. He orders and tells the camera that he ordered black coffee with pie and a slice of yellow cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Which really made me laugh. Um, but yeah, 50th. You do see, it's it's amazing to look out. You can see the Columbus Circle statue mm-hmm. in the middle. Um, you can sort of see the main monument in the far side and see what would today be the Time Warner Center What's, off to the yeah. left. What's interesting, you, the building you don't see. Oh, and you also see the building that would become the Museum of Arts and Design. Oh, also. that's right. Yeah. But what you don't see, interestingly enough, is the Coliseum right. itself, which was that t- horrid uh, convention center that Robert Moses built. So that's just sort of convenient. So, uh, it's such an eyesore. It just didn't fit uh, this particular camera angle. Which brings up the, the subject of what, you know, Scorsese decided to put in the shots. Mm-hmm. Because just like much of this, you know, anytime we're dealing with his brooding, mostly we're at night or we're at a rally. And most of the time that we're kind of feeling okay about things, he's not around and we're with Betsy and Tom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also, the, the director here has decided what to show us and what not to show us. Even, you know, when he's tr- driving around at night and he, you've got the saxophone moving, crooning, and you're looking at marquees, you're not seeing, like, modern buildings or anything that looks remotely clean. <laughs> no, never. He's been never. very careful, yeah, yeah. you know, to, to just keep it gritty. And again, it's because we're seeing it through his, his 
eyes. And so that's how he sees the city. You know, there's a lot of theories that this is, of course, how he sees himself. So he's re- that is being reflected onto the city. But, mm. you know, realistically, there were some dirty parts of the city. So are you suggesting that there have been term papers written about this <laughs> yeah. movie? I think there's been whole term papers just about the re- the rear view mirror. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and just the the mirrors in the cars. But. I, I wonder if there's been a term paper written about the child's restaurant scene and like what he ordered. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that the cheese on the pie, in fact, has been assiduously picked apart um, by by film. Film cinastes. <laughs> All right, so, but I, we, speaking, well, now that we're back in the cab here, we should mention that there's another scene in which, quite coincidentally, Palantine himself enters the cab. Now, during, oh, right, that was know, quite, quite a coincidence. <laughs> um, he gets into the cab and he says, I have learned more about America and taxi cabs than anything else. I mean, they're both, what's fascinating is they're, ni- they're both talking in kind of circles. Uh, he, and, of course, Palantine, we think, is sort of revolted by some of the things that Travis Bickle is saying, although there seems to also be maybe a little bit of acknowledgement that, you know, well, you know, he could be one of our voters. You know, he's there's something very kind of, let's just say, very modern about that particular scene, if you ask me. Yeah, although I can't imagine, you know, the presidential candidate at this point getting into just a yellow cab. (laughs) And in fact, that's one of the first things that they say. His assistant says, like, are you sure we shouldn't have just waited for the limo? You know, because right, all right. who is this random cab who's just been waiting outside, what was it, the Waldorf or something? Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, so then Travis, you know, ends up breaking into their conversation and telling him what he would fix about the city. And that is when he says that he gets so upset about the city that sometimes he just wishes that, you know, somebody would just come along and flush it down the The toilet. toilet. All right. But before that Palantine in the cab scene, um, he had gone out to the terminal bar um, and met up with some of his, you know, cabbie friends in the middle of the night there. Now, the terminal bar was located basically on the site of today's New York Times yep. skyscraper. You remember the terminal bar? <laughs> uh, we, yeah, we actually talk about it in our Times Square in the 1970s show. Right, exactly. And now to get to get there um, in that scene, he passes through Times Square. Uh, great shot of all the billboards. But what's amazing is that there's a shot of one Times Square. One Times Square with its news zipper. Mm-hmm. What one Times Square doesn't have in that shot are billboards or very many billboards. <laughs> That's true. So it's so strange to see one Times Square with its marble exterior and actually two floors of windows. So if you're watching along... Yeah take special note of that because Mm -hmm. those are things we don't see anymore that building is completely covered (laughs) in advertising and uh yeah i mean it's it it doesn't look attractive but it looks like a completely different building right (laughs) you know um but speaking of a building that i think actually looks gorgeous we're going to go down now to the east village which uh you know i tom and i have spent many 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 years in the east village and you know lived down further in the lower east side and it's so interesting to see it in the 70s and see how what it looked like and it also had that grittiness of times square a little bit or at least that's how it's presented here but um in kind of a different way so we're focused specifically on a an old theater called the variety photo plays that was on 14th street and third avenue we are right in front of it. It's a porn theater. 
by this time in the movie. And it is an old 1920s theater. It was an old Nickelodeon. It was regrettably torn down. And so it's in front and of And replaced that. with a, a steel and glass skyscraper, a 20-something story building for condos. Yeah, <laughs> just like pretty much so many other things that we're talking about here. But w while in front of this, and it's just amazing to me to think of the East Village filled with all of these different things, which, reflecting that old period when Union Square was the heart of the theater world. Um, but it, Absolutely. It, it is, it, it's here that Jodie Foster pops into the back seat. She is a, I believe it's 12 and a half years old. She's depicted as a young child prostitute. And she gets in the cab and she kind of wants to escape. But then a- She says, get me out of this hell. But then we don't see his face, but it's actually her pimp, Harvey Keitel, played by Harvey Keitel, who then grabs her, pulls her out of the cab, and then throws a wrinkled $20 bill in the front seat, a $20 bill, which then hold great disturbing meaning to Travis Bickle as he shoves it into his pocket. He throws it, Kaitel throws it into the front seat and says, forget all about this mm -hmm. and tells him basically to drive off. So that is the introduction of that character. Yeah. Now, do we want to speak really just really briefly? I have to I've put Jodie Foster into a little bit of context here because she is also a very young actress at this time. I think she's about 13 or 14 years old. In fact, uh, many people knew, know her from her work in Disney films. Like she debuted in Napoleon and Samantha. Remember that movie with oh, the lion? Yeah. And she would actually continue making Disney films. I mean, so that's sort of interesting that she- Like uh, Disney's old live action, family friendly <laughs> films. Yes. She was in several afterwards. So it's interesting that then she would make this extremely Disturbing. vivid- and and really, uh, you know, a movie that would set her apart from the rest of young Hollywood, I would say. So interesting that Disney would actually continue to use her and to cast yeah, her even after making what was such a, you know, in many ways disturbing I, I would agree. Film. Yeah. So anyway, but now... Uh, she represents, you know, if we're thinking about this in a Freudian sense of the idea of goddess whore complex here, because Jodie Foster represents the, quote, whore comp part of the, of the complex. Sybil Shepherd will be the goddess. But, of course, as we know, the characters don't f align with that. But, you, we, again, we're seeing them through Travis Bickle's screwed up mind, where he only sees them in these very stark contrasts. So then he goes on a date well, with said so, goddess. Right. So then the very next scene, we see him getting all clean shaven and looking very dapper, ready to go off with his goddess on this date. Mm-hmm. He looked great, actually. He's sporting this, this oh, yes. red corduroy jacket, and he's he got this clever idea, you know, to pick up the Chris Christopherson album at Sam Goody. <laughs> yeah, at Sam Goody, and then you know he's ready to show it to her. And when she he picks her up, you know, she's also looking good. They're going off to see quote a movie that he has selected. He presents her with the album, and she's like. Did you did you listen to this? You know the song that I suggested, but of course he hadn't listened to it because uh -huh. of course he doesn't have a record player. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it wasn't. You know, it's like he didn't even digest that information that he told her. You know that it right. wasn't. It wasn't about listening to that song. It was like, oh, this is a thing that I can perhaps impress her with. And so that's we see that he, that they're on different wavelengths. Mm -hmm. That they're from different places. They live different kinds of lives. I mean, she's thinking to herself. I told you to listen to this song. 
and she clearly most likely already has this album. I'm, it, but at the same time, it's sweet. So there's something it very feels sweet, sweet yes. and, mm-hmm. and caring coming from his side. And it feels very sweet and lovely until we get to the theater. Right. Now, before we get into the theater, I just have to mention really quick that they, because it's extremely, today we'd call it David Lynchian thing with the drummer, this like sweaty drummer who's like oh, yeah. playing on the yeah, street. Yeah. He's actually, he was actually, his name is Gene Palma, and he was a famous street drummer in New York in the 1970s and 80s. So that was like literally plucked from the street themselves. So anyway, they go into the Lyric Theater. But today, if you go to the Lyric, I think you're seeing Harry Potter. (laughs) You are seeing Harry Potter, yes. (laughs) But but if you go back then, um, what was on the marquee um, was a movie called Sometimes Sweet Susan. Although the movie that's played in in the theater is a different movie. Right. It's like a, it's a sort of Swedish, quote unquote, sex education film. <laughs> so they're speaking Swedish or maybe it's Danish. I, I can't really remember. But you're seeing like, let's just say that it starts with a pretense of education and it it devolves very quickly as Betsy slash Sybil squirms in her seat. And then once she realizes, I mean, it just dawns on her that she's in a porn house watching a pornographic film with a guy she doesn't even know who clearly has a couple screws loose. <laughs> and she just gets up, crawls over some people awkwardly in the, in the seats and gets the heck out of there. Um, yeah, she runs away, grabs, she's like, she ends up taking the record, doesn't she? Like, there's a, she doesn't want the record, and then finally she's just like, if it means that you'll go away. And so then we get, um, I, I guess it's, I guess we're to believe that like a few days had passed because he's calling her from a payphone uh, because he sent her flowers, but of course she, she doesn't, she doesn't want to talk to him, and she doesn't want any of these flowers. She sends them all back. So we're actually later in his apartment, and we see all of these rejected flowers <laughs> that are drying on the floor. I didn't realize that they just returned them to sender. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they just returned them to the florist, but, you know, I guess that that's what they did back in the 70s. But um, he gets so desperate, he goes to the headquarters, you know, and he's hanging out there. It's interesting there's no security guard there. He finally gets up the the, the nerve yeah. to go in and confront her. There is a scene. It's very awkward. But you'd think that there'd be at least, you know, I guess these were the days before security guards. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, this movie will evoke a lot of dangerous moments in American history that would, of course, suggest the reasons we should have more security in places like this. Right, and t- so it's left to Tom you know, uh, Betsy's com- you know, sort of office boyfriend to finally do something and drag Travis, um, d- you know, who's like in- about to start doing some kung fu on him, mm-hmm. out the door and basically pushes him off onto the corner on Broadway. Meanwhile, did you notice the name of the, s- the, sh- the shop behind them? It was a oh. fish store, a fish store called Ant Fish. <laughs> You see it a Ant couple fish. times, yeah. When you're when they do a shot of the front door, and oh. I just thought, what an unusual name for a for a fish market. <laughs> um, and uh, oh, old New York. <laughs> well, um, speaking of old New York, that evening uh, he pulls up to an, a bar called McGann's Bar, which is on Third Avenue. Uh, I don't. I'm not familiar. I think that there's other McGann's bars. I think there's even one in Port Authority, but I'm not sure it's if it's associated. But anyway, the the most significant part here is he picks up a new uh, customer. The customer played 
by Martin Scorsese. So he's oh. so he's, he's is this his second scene, and they they do something that is on one hand somewhat Hitchcockian because he essentially just goes up to an apartment building and they park, and in a clever little like in joke, he directs. Travis Bickle to look up at the window and tells him to look and to tell him, look, what is he seeing? What are you seeing? And so it's, the woman is Martin Scorsese's wife. Having but, an affair. Right. With a, an African-American man, we mm-hmm. should say, because that, that ties into it. But up to that point, it's Hitchcockian. But then Scorsese starts to talk about the gun that he bought and all these horrific things that he's going to do. And all of a sudden, the movie gets really even more dark because these things of course put ideas in to Travis Bickle's head. So this is a moment then when the director of the film has literally changed the plot. He, <laughs> yeah, he, so he's the one who spins the plot because he introduces the idea of a gun quite literally to the audience <laughs> and to the driver. Now this play, we see one result of how this plays out in the following scene at the Belmore Cafeteria. Yes, uh, Tom, this is where I, I, I remembered our diners, automats, cafeteria show uh, very well because I, for, I forgot that there's still these cafeteria type th- places yeah. throughout the city, and this was at 28th and Park, and okay. it had a beautiful neon sign. And there's a great interior scene here at the Belmore Cafeteria. They, they, It's like they wanted to show us and document exactly how the cafeteria worked. Mm-hmm. You see him walk in, you see him walk up to the turnstile, a ticket come out, he takes the ticket and then he can go through the turnstile and then he gets himself, I think it's a cup of coffee and a big dry piece of cake or <laughs> Yeah, something. I think so. An overbaked piece of banana bread or something. But then he sits down with the guys. And they have, you know, very hateful conversations. Including one about ripping off a couple from Ohio. He said one of the drivers says, well, I wouldn't have made anything tonight if I hadn't picked up. uh, uh, Fortunately, I picked up a couple from Ohio at JFK and took them by Long Beach on the way into Midtown. (laughs) And they were so stupid, uh, they even gave me a $5 tip on top of it. (laughs) You know, I'm just going to hold my friendly fire. Yeah. They also, you know, talk about, you know, homosexuals not in my cab, you know, but in California, homosexuals can pay alimony. Right, but, and then they're all like, oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. So then later outside, Travis has a more, one of these dark confessionals with the wizard about, like, I've got some bad ideas in my head. And then you have, I mean, just that great lighting, that neon lighting that's onto the both of them. And that's when you realize that Travis is really... Down in the dumps. He's slipping off the deep end. And he looks bad. I mean, he's gone. He has gone from looking sharp to looking shaggy. (laughs) And I mean shaggy from Scooby-Doo. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh He suddenly looks like shaggy. And we also have heard at this point, we know from his interview at the beginning, that he's allegedly 26 years old. Yeah. I mean, he is looking bad for 26 at this (laughs) moment because he's just like clearly not sleeping or shaving and just looking well, like, you know. You know. The, well, the next scene, he's eating bread with whiskey and milk and sugar, right? <laughs> so, I mean, that is, so this is the sort of nadir of his diet because it's going to quickly change. And he's watching TV where Palantine, the candidate, is appearing and kind of, you know, talking about how he's been speaking to every man. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, that seemed very real to me. That struck me as very real. That yeah. There'd be like this candidate who's like, I've talked to the man in the street. And we know that. Well, he's talked to Travis. 
<laughs> yeah, that was we've we've seen him talk to one of these people. It's true. Now, just really quickly, he he almost hits Jodie Foster. Uh, I'm sorry, her name is Iris in the film. Well, so, or Easy, right? I mean, her her sort of her nickname, her nickname, her professional. We find out later her name's Iris. Right. Okay. So so again, but that's down in the East Village because in the background of the scene, you can see the Gothic cabinet makers. I think that they are unfortunately closed now, but as recently as just a few years ago, it was still open, so you could actually identify that corner. And now there's like a Keels. <laughs> is there. I think Peter Stuyvesant's old pear tree is on that corner, actually. Wait a second. That that was shot where the Keels is on 3rd <laughs> Avenue? Um, Ricky's is there. Oh, yeah. There's a Jennifer convertible, I think, there now. <laughs> now, I want to get to the to the next scene because I'm very excited about the fact that... That, uh, that would have really <laughs> killed the scene if Scorsese had, like, included Jennifer convertibles <laughs> in the back. So the, the great... So then these, for a couple scenes, we actually get out of Manhattan which is hilarious because we meet Easy Andy, the traveling salesman. Easy who, Andy is quite a character. I mean, he's like, he's introduced to Travis. He gets in the in a cab with Travis. So he's like oh, that's met true, through right? uh-huh. connections and then they're taken to some place. He's introduced as the salesman. And then they go into what? Is it an apartment? Is it a hotel room? <laughs> it's Well, first of all, it's Brooklyn Heights which is kind of funny, that you're going to do an illicit drug deal or gun deal. Well, he also sells drugs. Um, A gun (laughs) deal (laughs) at Brooklyn Heights over the promenade in an apartment today that would be like tens of millions of dollars. But, you know, so now they're doing this deal here. And Andy, by the way, is also wearing a very smart brown three-piece corduroy suit. Oh, yes, you know, yes, so he yes. Looks very, and he's carrying a number of briefcases, which when he opens up and you see that they are completely filled with guns of very, <laughs> yeah. various sizes, you know? I mean, these, these scenes kind of strike us differently today than perhaps they might have in, in you know, 1976, definitely, um, the sort of illegal gun market. But to, to stick to Brooklyn as a setting, then we get, after this scene, a quick workout montage because now he's like he's not eating his chuckles candy anymore he's Mm-mm. gonna work out because he's crazy and he's got something on his mind that he wants to do he is he is getting in shape he's like getting in shape in jeans only <laughs> yeah. at home it's like he's doing a p90 p90x <laughs> you know circa 1976 routine with a knife and tapes you know like comes up with these ways to conceal weapons yeah there's a lot of like gun strapping just when you think something's just sort of like oh that's kind of cool you know he's turning it around he's getting uh-huh. in shape then you see him like you know working like special magic with with guns strapped to different parts of his body uh-huh um but otherwise, I mean, in this scene, I, I made a note here that yeah. it looks like he's getting ready to go to the Pride Parade. <laughs> well, you know, it is true with like maybe a, like a leather chaps or something. He would fit in perfectly yeah. with, with no problem because he looks very svelte. He'd too. have to. Yeah, he'd have to lose, though, all those guns. I want to race to the next scene here because I think it's just sort of funny in terms of how they must have made the movie. The next scene is at a campaign event for mm-hmm. Palantine, but it's actually filmed at Cadman Plaza in Brooklyn, which is only a uh. few blocks away from where they had shot the Easy Andy scene. So I'm just really? imagining that the city probably gave them a few days of a you know like, like a permit for a few days, and they're like, "Well, we're in Brooklyn. Let's do these two scenes here because they don't really the two scenes don't relate to each other, but they just are coincidental." 
coincidentally almost next door to yeah. each other. Yeah, and, and by the way, like, again, he doesn't even look like he did uh, when he was brokenhearted and talking to his, you know, sort of mentor in the street that night. Right. Now he's looking sharp. This is the first time I wrote down here he looks like Tom Cruise. Or he oh, there's an yeah. early, mm-hmm. like, Tom Cruise look that he would hold on to. Uh, for much of the movie, for much of the rest of it, he's wearing like he's got this new short cropped haircut, mm-hmm. and he's wearing this like n- cool green bomber jacket. There's also a little bit of a comedy routine that <laughs> yeah. he does with the Secret Service officer. Well, it's 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 incredibly stupid. On it's, I would actually say if I were to find a weakness in this movie, like like off the top of my head, this might be it because it's a little contrived that he would be so stupid. As to, he's clearly, like, maybe he just doesn't see that he, how nuts he is. So he's talking to a secret, secret service officer who's like, oh, yeah, maybe you could be a secret service person. Why don't you give us your address? And so he, then he gives them an address, which is clearly phony. Right, because he can't even get the zip code, <laughs> the number of digits in the zip code correct. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly everyone's on high alert now that he's here. So anyway, so this puts him on secret services radar essentially in a big way uh-huh and yes it does feel a bit contrived but i mean you could certainly make the same point about the fact that he somehow coincidentally picked up palantine in the first place <laughs> True. oh know, yeah that's, that was that's, pretty yeah, yeah that's, that, that was pretty contrived good. now but then we go in the very next scene into probably the most famous yeah. part of the entire film the you talking to me scene <laughs> now this you know, because it's so iconic and stands out from the rest of the movie. It's it's in every film montage that the Oscars have ever shown. But I forgot how insane he is mm-hmm. in here. It's not just like he's not just being like you know like looking at himself like look how hot I am. Like are you like he's not like kind of doing a fake flirtation with himself. There's like this menace and darkness to this scene. That you know, lo- you lose it when it gets cut out and thrown into the film retrospective, right? With like <laughs> you know? soaring orchestration underneath <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. But in this case, it's even choppy editing, you know, th- yeah. done on Scorsese's part, that makes you feel when you're watching it like you feel disturbed. You know that this guy is tormented. Yes, it's really on edge. And then this culminates into an insane s- scene uh, that evening in a convenience store uh, where he is in the back when someone goes in to attempt to rob it. He has his gun on and kills the man. And it, again, it's a the, the thief in this case is a black man. So this is a, another culmination of this like racist unrest that's also kind of part of his violence. It's also the first time, obviously, that he uses a gun on another person. Yeah. Although he's been waiting to use a gun, this is the first time he actually does. Mm-hmm. And then it's also the first time that it seems like he even um, stops for a second. Once he has shot the man, he stops and even considers like, oh, wait a second, what am I going to do? I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. Mm-hmm. And in this case, you know, the the owner of the deli, who he seems to be friends with, says, just get out of here. Give me the gun. Get out of here. I'll take care of it. Yeah. So it's like he was able to like perform violence without any repercussions. You know? uh, yeah. It's the, very the, weird. It was dark. a very unsettling scene and it even gets scarier in a way because then the owner of the deli starts beating the man with an iron club so i mean he's already been shot it's 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 things are getting dark so 
Where do you want to go? This is why I stick to musicals. (laughs) Well, so there's... There's another scene of him writing a happy anniversary card to his mom. Yeah. He's really, really kind of losing control. And and you feel that he's, you know, he's like brooding and grasping a, his his shotguns. He's becoming more and more isolated. Um, and then he attends one of the Palatine rallies. Uh-huh. It seems like he's in the garment district, just judging from the yeah. buildings around him. And he, he doesn't ultimately do anything, but just his presence there. He's in the car. And a police officer forces him this time to keep moving, Mm -hmm. you know, but we're starting to get nervous every time we see him that he's going to use that gun again. It's just going to like he's just going to burst right forth with this rage. And he's back in his his crappy apartment, you know, looking at the TV, which he accidentally knocks over at one point. And meanwhile, you still see that sign on his wall that says, one of these days I'm going to get organized. (laughs) Organized. (laughs) Which is a running joke. Incredibly cheesy sign to sort of like offset all of this. Now, he goes back down to 3rd Avenue and 12th Street. uh, Or, sorry, 3rd Avenue and 13th Street because he now wants to like meet Iris. Jodie Foster's character. And so he, have, he has the pr- pretense of hiring her for sex. $15 for 15 minutes, $25 for half an hour. We hear from her pimp, played by Harvey Keitel. Now, they already joke with him. They call him a copper, because they think that yeah. he's a cop, which again brings into this idea that you know Scorsese took from all these old cowboy Indian cops and robbers mm-hmm. movies. So there's this dark subtext of calling him like a good guy in this scene. Right. Calling him both a cop and then calling him a cowboy. Yeah. He's called both of those things. I mean, what he isn't called is just like, you know, kind of nutty. Because <laughs> right. he walks up, he walks up to Kaitel and just says like, yeah, how about, you know, I want to, I want a good time or whatever. He's like, <laughs> right. clearly... He looks like an oddball. He's approaching this pimp mm-hmm. in such an obvious manner that, yeah, and he's an unknown customer. So clearly, he's seen, you know, everybody feels ill at ease every time they see him. <laughs> you know, Everyone, whether yeah. they be like working for a campaign or whether they be working in prostitution. You know, nobody <laughs> is like comfortable when they're first approached. <laughs> oh, look at by this. Travis. This is a cool dude coming up. No yeah. one is thinking that about Travis, uh, Travis Bickle. So then. But Except the, maybe Iris. Yeah. So then when they go up, it's true that when they she lights a cigarette and she's like, when that cigarette is out, we're done. Right. Uh, and I was like, really? A cigarette takes 15 minutes to burn? <laughs> so maybe she was trying to cheat him. Or, um, or maybe they were Virginia Slims, you know, really long. <laughs> oh, that's long, true. Oh, uh, oh, Misties. <laughs> of course, he doesn't want to, quote, make it with her. No. Said, don't you, don't you want to make it, it? It takes her several, thankfully, unsuccessful attempts before she realizes this guy's just kind of kooky. Yeah. He wants to sit here and talk to me. And then he invites her, interestingly, when his time's up, he invites her to breakfast the next day. Oh, that's true. Before we get to Bre- breakfast. Breakfast at yeah. one. Uh-huh. <laughs> one o'clock. That's right. Yeah. I just have to say really quickly that, like, the room, which is, like, I think it's that he pays $10 for the use of the room. 20 uh, at the end. Th- 20 at the end. That's true. Um, he, um, that room's kind of nice. <laughs> it's oh, yeah. like It's, like, really, it's, like, it's nicely decorated. Yeah, it's that kinda... <laughs> actually threw me off. I was, like, I think I've been to a party, like, a house party in that room. <laughs> that was a little surprising. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> so, a lot of reds and pinks and uh-huh. candles. Oh, yeah, all a, the candles. A yeah. record player. Mm-hmm. So, yes, the diner. Let's get to the diner. Okay, it's so one... they go to breakfast the next day um, in an East Village diner, looks like. I love it from the outside. There's a guy, did you see, scooping Gino's Italian ices? Oh, yeah. Which is like a sign and a, a sort of like cart that you still see around today. I know. I mean, that is like some things never change, thank God. Most things do, but not Gino's. One thing that also has changed are Iris's glasses. She oh. has the most amazing green mm-hmm. glasses in that in that first the first moment we see her. She actually switches them to different glasses in the scene. She changes her her glasses. Oh, she does. She yeah. <laughs> that is so fashionable. Um, but she, you find out in this scene how interesting and powerful she is. I mean, she's. You ever heard of women's lib? You ever try looking at your own eyeballs in the mirror? I mean, she says these kind of like kind of wacky things, but they they suggest a kind of a deeper person um, but also like makes you the audience I mean look she got nominated for an Academy Award for this performance because in these just few scenes you've really fall for her and you're you're just like oh this is someone who's going to make something out of their life if they can get out of this situation and Travis Bickle in his broken mind thinks that like he can you know, as he's tr- going to like attempt to assassinate a presidential candidate, this same part of his mind is also like, I need to save this person. Yeah. And meanwhile, we find out that that she believes uh, that Iris believes that Keitel, her pimp, actually loves her. So she's mm-hmm. delusional in her own ways. Not knowing, of course, the terrible and sleazy promises that he makes oh, yeah. to the, the yeah. customers on the street. And then she also tells uh, Travis at this point that just someday she wants to move out. W- where does she want to go? She wants to go off and live in Vermont in a commune, <laughs> which is so, you know, in in Congress at that point, unless you think that, well, actually, you know, like she's kind of she's not living in a commune, but she's living with a bunch of other people at this point, obviously. Um, it seems so far away and so far removed from the scene. She doesn't even really know what that would be like. No. And Travis has a hilarious line because he's like, commune, I've never been, but it doesn't sound clean. <laughs> I actually thought that was the funniest line in the in the whole play. I mean, it's not a laugh riot, you know, this movie, but well, th- that made me stop and laugh. Well, and it's because I, uh, but I almost feel like it's, it's more, it's not just like a physically clean that there may be like an, a mo- he's making some kind of a moral judgment there yeah. too. Because we've seen him judge, we've seen him talk about cleanliness many times oh. in this movie and it's not yeah. what he, and he don't mean like scrub the floors. Well, he sometimes means wipe the back seat. <laughs> Oh, that's true. Oh, that so is he true. Do, he talks about all forms, and now we're just back into like film school dissertation <laughs> territory. But yeah, he's there's a lot of cleanliness talk. So let's jump ahead to um, one of the potentially most disturbing parts of this movie, because he is now going to get ready to go free. Betsy by assass or impress Betsy by going to assassinate candidate Palantine. He even like signs over all of his money to Iris, right? In anticipation that he's not going to survive or he's going to get arrested or something. So then he heads up to a campaign event in Columbus Circle. And the framing of this is such an interesting, uh, 
Scorsese does, Marty does such an interesting job framing it because Palatine is right in front of the the main monument. And the main monument was done Main in, as in M-A-I-N-E. Yes, a, a monument to the, to the USS Maine, which exploded in Havana, Cuba in 1898. This this the monument was put up there in 1913 and it's about as ostentatious as you can find in yes. new york city so he is d- almost in this symmetrical frame you know the front of it has a little boy like opening his arms up so those are like on the other on the either side of, of palatine and palatine even addresses the location when he steps up to the mic to speak after tom introduces him uh-huh uh, Palantine says something like, here we are, ladies and gentlemen, standing here at a crossroads in history, and we're standing at a crossroads of the city, referring to Columbus Circle and, and the crossroads of, you know, the crossing of Broadway and of 8th Avenue and of 59th Street. So he kind of makes this interesting grid analogy. <laughs> yeah, it's that true. At least, you know, I kind of was, I was into, I'd vote for Palantine <laughs> just because of, <laughs> because of that. Well, the, what makes this scene so disturbing, well, there's two things about it, and they have nothing to do with what's in the movie. You know, first of all, according to Paul Schrader, that this scene was directly um, inspired by the assassination attempt on George Wallace by Arthur Bremer. Um, but number two, of course, and let well, me you, guess, yes. is the fact that Travis shows up. Um, we see him get out. We see him kind of arrive. We we're, we only see kind of lower body. We're looking at his arms because we know that he's packing heat somewhere. He's concealing, you know, weapons with his like crazy holsters that he has hidden. But then we see him for the first time. We see his full body and we see that he is shaved all but a mohawk on oh, yeah. his head. And, and it's just so striking. I mean, all of a sudden, it's like he is a warrior. He shows up to assassinate this nominee, a warrior. Well, and then the the thing to remember is that punk music, which would, of course, like take the mohawk as a fashion statement, has is just arriving in the world. So really, this mohawk is is more of like an Indian, you know, a Native American look, and that is of course following in with the whole cowboys and Indian thing that Scorsese is doing with this movie. I wish that I could at this point direct our listener to listen to our most recent podcast on New Amsterdam, yeah. part one, or uh, the original Native New Yorkers, um, you know, wh- wh- where we speak at length about the Lenape, but. Um, I just don't see anything. <laughs> I don't think that Lenape. I don't think we said really anything of value to this. Well, I don't think that, I, I'm not sure if the Lenape wore a, a mohawk style, but maybe, maybe I don't. I'm not going to. I, I just wanted to before we leave to go to the next scene. The most disturbing thing about this scene is that this was the scene that inspired John Hinckley Jr., who was obsessed with Jodie Foster in the movie, saw this as a way to impress her. Like, he wanted to, in a way, copy Travis Bickle's, uh, what he wa- was intending to do, which was to assassinate in some sort of, like, twisted mind idea that this was going to, like, uh, impress Jodie Foster. In the same way that Travis thinks it's going to somehow free or impress Betsy. And and then Hinckley, of course, went off to make an attempted assassinate to make an assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And 
so this is yes this is life imitating art <laughs> but and actually in the movie he doesn't end up you know the secret service because they've already identified him um he's not able to make an attempt on on the life of palantine so he goes downtown for the most epic uh, and the most b- violent scene in the film and he decides if he can't save betsy then he will save easy slash iris and then goes on this bloody killing spree shooting Kaitel, going inside the building on 13th street doing a horrific blowing of the hand off of, of the guy who works there and then essentially just this huge bloodbath emerges it's that pent up horror that we've seen through the whole movie but what happens is that in saving Iris, the the big twist. Now of the hold movie. on, this yeah. is a spoiler. <laughs> the oh, well, I guess we've been spoiling yeah, yeah. it throughout this entire thing. The big twist of the movie is that this this evil this that has been simmering is interpreted through the through these events as as a as a local hero. He becomes the the great vigilante hero that New York in the mid nineteen seventies is looking for. Yes, and he's only there to become a hero um, because he has failed to to kill himself. He, in fact, his very last shot he intends to take on himself, uh, toward himself, but he can't because he's out of bullets. So there's an additional layer of irony there because he's tried to off himself. Mm-hmm. And he sees probably that is the logical conclusion of things. Never in his wildest fantasies would he have imagined being treated as a hero. (laughs) Now, this seems like perhaps a little bit of a stretch that this man could just go in and just murder a bunch of people and then be considered a hero just because of who those people were. But in fact, the city, you know, this would occasionally happen and sometimes still does happen. Uh, For instance, you have Bernard Goetz in the 1980s is, is rewarded for such vigilanteism. This scene, by the way, the shootout was so was so disturbing, so grotesque um, that Scorsese desaturated the colors to make it a little bit more bearable. I also want to point out the fact, again, that this was shot on location, even those scenes um, in, you know, the shootout scene in the apartment itself, which is a real New York City apartment, Uh were shot in that apartment space. To do that, they had to take out a whole part of the ceiling so that the cameras could fit up there and and shoot down from the floor above uh, where Iris's apartment was. But much of that scene is shot from overhead. You're yeah. moving. You're moving. You know. You're kind of like um, you're casing out the joint overhead, looking down um, on this horrific scene. This is one of these scenes that's like was so influential that it almost seems like a copy of something because we've seen it copied but, so, you know, you many know, so many times and, and, and yeah. under the whole thing you've got Bernard Herrmann's score you know you've got timpanis banging 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 and and harps strumming you know so this is a different soundtrack at this point we don't have Travis's saxophone theme here at all no but it it pops up one more time yes at the it very comes back end. in the very next scene when he picks up um, after we see that he has survived, and he, then he's back in his cab. He stops at the St. Regis he, briefly. He picks. He goes to pick up a fare at the St. Regis, and who pops in? But of course, Sybil Shepherd slash Betsy. 
sits in the back and we hear a hello travis from the back seat <laughs> which is very umbrellas of cherbourg because oh. it is again our two sort of heroes or anti-heroes coming together one last time um, the love that couldn't happen because they were from different places and in yeah. different wavelengths, yeah. really. And then interestingly, it's also, I think it reveals some shallowness to Betsy because she seems like she's interested because she read about it in the newspaper, right? Like, wouldn't, if she, if that event hadn't happened- Well, there's happened, no Facebook. No one could tweet out that he had done this. So if that if, if this event hadn't happened, this event of absolute rage that was supposed to have actually assassinated the man that she worked for, now it's like, oh, well she oh, he's a he's a hero now. And so there's like a softness to her voice. When I don't think that she would have gotten back with him. I mean, I, I suppose I, I think, think there's a realization there that those two are just from different places. Yeah. She even says that, you know, when she runs out of the porn theater, like an hour and 20 minutes before, she says, we're just, we're different. Mm -hmm. And they're just, they're, I think that there's a realization that she has some kind of love for him, but it's just, they're different. Yeah. And there is, of course, one last moment in this because it doesn't just end like that. He doesn't just drive off and we all kind of have that ache in our hearts because he has to make one last crazy look in the <laughs> rearview mirror as if something just caught his eye and you he see snapped a, again. Yes. a flash of of something dark. What's those red and those red and blues? The city, the, the blurred city comes back in, the steam comes back in. The and, kaleidoscopic yeah. images of 42nd Street come back in. And what we realize is that skewed view of the city has he has not shaken that by being a hero that in fact that like <laughs> if this film had been made five years ago there would be a sequel because that is what a classic setup of a sequel would be like of like oh but the killer's not dead you know right um and so then he goes off into the steam and the credits roll well, so we're closing the book here. I'm sure we'll be visiting another uh, Marty film in the near future because many of them, from the Age of Innocence to Gangs of New York, have New York history settings. So, But we so. would like to thank you, patrons, for not just joining us today, but for supporting us on patreon.com slash Boys. It really is because of your support that we're able to dedicate our time to making the show. So... Thank you so much for your help. Well, have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. We'll see you at the movies. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee.